From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two more of President Biden's top leaders are in place tonight. The Senate confirmed Kathleen Hicks to be the Deputy Secretary of Defense and Dennis McDonough to be the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. The Senate confirmed Hicks on a voice vote. The vote on McDonough was 87 to 7. A state personnel leader from New Mexico will take over a key management job at the Office of Management and Budget. Former New Mexico State Personnel Office leader Pam Colbin is the new Associate Director for Performance Management at OMB. GovExec reports Colbin was the first leadership development team lead at the Office of Presidential Personnel in the Obama administration. Federal employees should get administrative leave time to get a coronavirus vaccine, according to a group of representatives from the D.C. area. A letter from seven members of the House to the acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Kathleen McGettigan, says some agencies aren't offering the time off now. The members give McGettigan until next Friday to respond with a decision. The Department of Homeland Security consistently ranks near the bottom on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Efforts are underway to improve employee morale, but the Government Accountability Office says the agency can do more. Chris Curry is Director of Emergency Management, Disaster Recovery, and DHS Management Issues at GAO. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. You took a look recently at two things regarding morale. The drivers of employee engagement at DHS, you write, and DHS initiatives to improve employee engagement and ensure effective engagement action planning. What did you find when you looked at each of those items, Chris? Two things, Francis. We've been looking at this since the department opened its doors in 2003. And so we continue to look at what the department and maybe more importantly, its components are doing to uh, strengthen employee morale and employee engagement. And there's a couple of things. The department's done a really good job in recent years in implementing what I'd say are DHS-wide policies and plans. One of the things we found this time that's a little bit different, and we think it's extremely important, is that I think the components are really need to be held accountable moving forward and the component actions need to be looked at. Oftentimes when uh, morale at DHS is discussed or in congressional hearings, the fingers tend to point towards uh, the department itself and the chief human capital officer. But really, I think the solutions to this issue lie in the large components, particularly TSA, CBP, FEMA, and others like that. And when you talk about those components, those are the ones, obviously, that have been the most challenged when it comes to the FEV numbers, uh, FEV's numbers and, and to the, the issues on a day-to-day -day basis with employees and, and their engagement. Some of those jobs at those organizations are really, really tough jobs. And I wonder if there is a possibility that maybe the numbers will never be good in those organizations just because the jobs are so hard, not so much because of something that the agency as an organization is or isn't doing, Chris. I think that's a completely fair point. Um, however, one of the things we did this time is we looked at other agencies as well across government. And what we found is interesting, Francis, we found that some of the drivers of employee engagement at DHS are the exact same things at other departments. So when those things go down or go up, the morale gets better. And I'll give you an example. It's not always the challenging missions. It's things like supervision. Do I trust my leaders? Do I, you know, do I get the training I need? Do I feel supported? My work-life balance. Um, so 
yeah, I don't want to minimize how challenging some of these jobs at DHS are. They absolutely are very, very difficult and these people work extremely hard. But when we really got into the numbers, we found that some of the same things that drive morale at other agencies drive morale at DHS. The work that you do, you list five drivers of employee engagement, and I commend this work to people who want to understand those. You have a link at govmatters.tv slash resources. But that idea that the that, that overall DHS as an enterprise is doing well and some of the components are struggling is kind of the opposite of what we've seen historically given the nature of DHS, as you say, since 2003. Is that a fair statement, Chris? Is it... Is it kind of an interesting twist that the uh, some of the components are not having as much success as the agency overall? Well, the agency overall, when I say, uh, I'm not sure if I, I want to paint it as a complete success. I, I think at the department level, we think they're doing a lot to set the right tone and to develop the requirements. Um, however, I just think in order to make a real impact in the scores moving forward, particularly in the large components, it's, it's gonna really take the leadership of those components and those components to be held accountable. And I'll give you an example. So when uh, Congress looks at this issue or has oversight hearings or does oversight, um, rather than just focusing on the department, uh, when they do their mission oversight of say FEMA or CBP or TSA, that they talk about morale issues in the same way they talk about the importance of the mission. Until that happens, I, I don't think you're gonna see quite the change in the components you're gonna wanna see, no matter what sort of tone is set at the department. Um, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, uh, Benny Thompson, said recently that he's made some progress, he believes, in the oversight framework and, and who has oversight over the Department of Homeland Security, as you well know, and if, as you've testified uh, to, I'm sure, there are uh, somewhere between 80 and 100 different committees of jurisdiction across both chambers of Congress. Is that potentially part of the problem, Chris, that, the, that there are so many different people conducting that oversight that you just, that you just talked about? There's no doubt that DHS has a unique oversight position in Congress. There's probably not another department that has that many committees of jurisdiction over it. However, what we've said in the past is none of that has an impact on, on what they do day to day in terms of their mission. And I'll go back to what we found in the, in the drivers of morale and employee engagement. It boils down to your day to day job, Francis, your relationship with the supervisor, the trust you have, the training, those are the things that really make a huge impact in somebody's morale and affects their mindset when they fill out that survey. And to your point, those are the things that are common, not just at Homeland Security, but all across the government. Those are the places that these leaders at these components uh, could go and learn from other agencies. That's what I take away from your recommendations, Chris. Is that a fair derivation on my part? That, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, again, I don't want to minimize the unique nature of the Department of Homeland Security's mission and the tough jobs that those folks have. But one point we really wanted to drive home is, is there's no reason why DHS can't make improvements in morale. It's not a hopeless cause. Other departments and agencies have done it. We've even seen progress. And I think, you know, Francis, you have to remember there are some components in the department, Coast Guard, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that have relatively high morale. We also saw, saw the Secret Service, you know, a few years ago, their morale was really bad um, and it's really improved because their leadership uh, directed a very focused effort to try to address this issue over the last couple of years. And we've seen improvement. So it is uh, the point, you know, we wanted to drive home. It's not a hopeless cause. It's not just because of the DHS mission. This can be done. Chris, thanks very much for joining me. It's great insight. Thank you.
Up next, keeping federal employees safe during the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new numbers reveal just how safe feds feel on the job. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to Pandemic Response Accountability Committee lists federal workplace safety as a top management concern. About 85% of federal employees say their managers support their ability to stay safe and healthy in the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, it's great to see you again. What's your sense of the numbers and maybe even the sentiment behind the numbers about what employees think about how their bosses are dealing with them in the pandemic? Well, certainly not all the data is out yet, Francis, so we still have a ways to go before agencies are really able to dig in and get a sense from an employee experience how this pandemic has landed on them overall. But it's encouraging to see point survey that participating rates we're also able, as you mentioned, to see that a large portion, mostly significant portion of the workforce feels as though they are supported and encouraged to really care for their health and well-being in the workplace. And especially over the past year, that's incredibly important as we run risks of isolation, loneliness, attacks on mental health and well-being, and of course, burnout. Um, so I'm really excited to also see the other data points from the OPM Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that specifically we're asking about pandemic-related impacts to the workforce. One of the things that you've told me every single time that you come on this program, I think, is that it's really important for leaders, managers to over-communicate. What is your sense of how that's going and what is your sense of how that's helping them uh, understand what their, their rank-and-file employees are going through? Well, this has been a great pilot program in progress, Francis. So you know, managers and supervisors have really had time to sort of tweak, adjust, and be flexible, no pun intended, with their approach to how they are engaging and um, checking in with, you know, the workforce. So using a variety of technology and collaborative platforms, making sure that they are implementing the right set of ingredients with frequency type choice and the ability to connect both with the team at large, but also on a one-on-one -on -one basis um, is really encouraging to see because on the federal employee viewpoint survey, early data points show that the federal workforce is feeling pretty encouraged by the way that their supervisors and managers have been able to communicate with them in this pandemic hybrid environment. Do you have a sense that one of these uh, benefits that employees are enjoying is bleeding over into another and that this is kind of an overall wellness thing that the fact that I'm not sitting in traffic for an hour each way makes me feel better about the communication I'm getting from my manager, um, that I'm more involved in my family's life, all of those kinds of things are creating kind of a, a better overall picture for people? Yes, Francis. I mean, certainly the psychological safety of being able to make sure you're taking care of what matters most, whether that be family or yourself or the other things in your life, even outside of work, so that you can in fact, bring your best to the mission when you have to um, be on duty. But keep in mind, the majority of the federal workforce has not been in an entirely remote work environment. And sometimes we forget that, especially in the national capital region, where we're 
primarily in headquarters areas, but across the country, people have still been going to work and they've had to have a safe and healthy way to be able to manage coming into a workplace, um, mitigating the risks of that. And you see that in the recent executive memo and the mandates that are coming out for planning for agencies as they consider reopening um, plans for those who have been working remotely. So whatever they've been doing so far, and again, it's being flexible and agile and also customizing your approach with what's available with regards to flexible scheduling and how that applies to the mission and the kind of work you do, but also your personal circumstance. So there are areas in the country that are less affected than others. Um, those that are in metropolitan areas, consider those that are working for TSA and you know in the transportation industry. And so really this takes a combined approach, bringing in those sets of competencies to be able to manage a multi-generational hybrid and highly flexible workforce for the future. So we are getting practice each and every day. And it looks as though when you point to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey early data points, that we're getting things really right this time around. We have, we have, we have less than a minute left. How do you put stock, how do you put context around these numbers given how much the, the pandemic has really kind of colored everything that we're looking at? Well, what's nice is that the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey really asked a same similar set of questions as it has in past years. So the comparison of data points will be really valuable for agencies who are looking at a base point to see what the impact of the pandemic is. And then they were specific pandemic related data points as well. I'll be especially interested to watch the impact of the questions that were asked around, do you have the right kinds of equipment? Um, do you have what you need to do your job well? because that will help inform strategies moving forward as agencies consider modernizing their IT infrastructure and bringing in new solutions for the digital workspace as well when they encourage and continue this hybrid way of working moving forward. Mika Cross, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Francis, for having me. Up next, making data more transparent in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, taking the politics out of science policy. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. One of President Biden's new executive orders aims to ensure that government leaders keep political interference out of science and technical information in government. It could change the way agencies approach data transparency. Nick Hart is CEO of the Data Coalition. Nick, welcome back. It's great to see you. Here's the quote from the memo that President Biden put out January 27th. It's the policy of my administration to make evidence-based decisions guided by the best available science and data. That should geek out people like us that are interested in uh, tracking performance in government, shouldn't it? Absolutely. I, I think this is a really exciting opportunity for those of us that care about science and data and evidence. Uh, and it shouldn't be missed on uh, folks in government, civil servants, political appointees alike, that this administration made that statement not a year in or not months into the administration, but one week into the new administration. So I think this is a, a call and a, a really a plea to those, regardless of what position you have in government, that 
we we need to have truth and trust in government that is built around science and evidence. And that's exactly what this policy statement offers. Does this put pressure, maybe pressure is not the right word, does this put emphasis on the data collection and curation efforts at agencies across government, Nick? Well, in some ways, that's obviously implicated. So the, the memo itself is uh, largely about scientific integrity. So back in the administration of President Obama, there was a lot of intentional effort to bolster government scientific integrity approaches. And this memo reinforces a lot of that uh, uh, existing effort. Um, the part that explicitly deals with data uh, is, I think, a, a, a call from a president that we've never seen before. So the recognition of chief data officers and evaluation officers, statistical officials in this presidential memorandum is, as far as I know, the, the first time a president has actually acknowledged those roles except in signing legislation. So for those that are in the community that are engaged in data collection and management, this is really a, a, a new headline for you that uh, folks are paying attention and, and want you to be able to succeed. Is there a sense, uh, do you have a sense that people will have to do their jobs differently, that people will have to uh, think differently about the way they're doing those tasks, or is this just a kind of a codification in that respect of what agencies are doing already? Well, it depends, and maybe it's too early to know for, for certain, but I think the hope is that this is really uh, a big sea change in the way government operates. So. Uh, back in 2018, when Congress called for the creation of chief data officers, for example, most of those CDOs weren't given resources when they were created or named into the positions. So by the fact that now a president is calling for uh, uh, the prioritization of the use of data, we have to make sure that we resource it appropriately. So you know, hopefully the stars are aligning here and that will ultimately change the way that we actually do this work. If you have money and people to engage in the work and it's not like a single person shop, uh, that totally changes the capability to get things done and organize information, produce open data, which is actually a really important provision that's included in the memo. There's this key phrase, machine-readable open data. And for those of us that have worked on data transparency for our careers, that's a magic phrase because it signals that there's a particular approach that we should be using to promote transparency for the American people. And that's included here in the memo. I take you to section 5B of this memo. Within 120 days, the date of this memo Memorandum, and that uh, that deadline date would be May 27th. After consultation with the director, the director of the Office of Management and Budget shall issue guidance to improve agencies' evidence-based building plans and annual evaluation plans. What would you expect, or what would you hope, would be included there, Nick? So, um, taken by another name, these are called learning agendas, and the whole construct was designed back in, in the Evidence Act or the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act to encourage agencies to plan their evidence and information needs. So this has implications for everything from social sciences to natural sciences, just across the board. I think the hope is that a new guidance from OMB will really encourage agencies to take this exercise seriously. And it's it's not just about planning for the sake of planning, it's planning so that those who are inside government and those of us who are on the outside can figure out how to work together and actually promote evidence-based policymaking by having the evidence in the first place. That evidence takes time to produce. And if we have better insights about the questions that agencies are struggling with trying to answer around particular policy matters, the data that they might need, the data they might need to share across agencies, that is a sea change for us in implementing evidence-based policymaking writ large across government. So the hope is that 
this guidance from OMB will encourage agencies to work together across the leadership positions that they have. Uh, maybe even we'll see OMB and the Office of Science Technology Policy working more collaboratively in implementing things from the Evidence Act. So to the point of that collaborative uh, policy and collaborative effort, this memo says Chief Data Officers Council shall incorporate scientific integrity principles consistent with this memorandum in its efforts to establish government-wide best practices uh, surrounding data. When Ted Kalk, the, the chairman of the Chief uh, Data Officers Council, was on the program the last time, he said basically, I'm paraphrasing his words, that's what they were doing already. Is that encouraging that these data uh, professionals across government are kind of already ahead of the curve on this? Yes. So uh, we have a, a fantastic cohort of CDOs and evaluation officials across government. Many of them are just getting started. So the more government and the president, for that matter, can reinforce the principles and the processes by which these activities should be implemented, I think the more likely they are to succeed. We're talking about culture change in agencies when it comes to data, and there's so much room for progress. I think, Francis, the other thing I would think is encouraging here is um, we have a, a number of nominees and appointees across government that are real champions of this topic. Uh, Dennis McDonough recently confirmed as the uh, uh, VA secretary, uh, the Commerce secretary, uh, a number of others. And, you know, leadership matters here. So hopefully those individuals, when they're taking the guidance that's coming out of OMB and promoting it across their agencies, can also make it real and ensure that this is not just a compliance exercise, that this is something that matters for uh, serving the American people better. Nick Hart, thanks very much. Great to have you back. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.